We're going to turn now to the book of Leviticus. We have been studying Leviticus throughout the summer, and as we draw near to the end of the book, it's helpful to remember that this is a document of agreement between two different parties, God as king and Israel as his people. And it was an agreement about what their relationship was going to look like going forward. And if that's the case, it's Good to consider this chapter, the terms and conditions. Instead of just scrolling to the bottom, why don't we stop and have a read, shall we? Leviticus chapter 6, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen. We're going to be starting in verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season. And the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land." I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease, and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. You shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies." Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but continue to walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters, and I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you. And your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate, while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. But if they confess their iniquity, And the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. And I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. I will, for their sake, remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord." These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as I pray for us. Oh God, to hear such terrible words from you can be confusing. It can be scary. But we know that we can trust you 
And so we ask that you would send us your spirit this morning to help us understand. Help us to see what you are saying and know and believe that somehow in it you are being good and loving towards your people. Help us to hear the words of life contained in this passage for us this morning. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And I pray this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen. The Far Side is a cartoon strip uh, that used to appear in newspapers. Now, newspapers were these things that you used to get delivered in the morning. Anyway, uh, if you don't know The Far Side, it's a cartoon strip that takes place all in one square, just one frame. That's the entire cartoon, and it's by a man named Gary Larson. And there's one of these cartoons that I think of often. It shows the inside of a restaurant. And all of the patrons sitting down are turned, looking at a man walking out of the bathroom. And his eyes are as big as dinner plates. And above the bathroom door is a sign with lights on it that are flashing and a bell that is ringing. And it says, didn't wash hands. I am not exaggerating when I say that nine out of ten times I use a restroom outside of my home, I think of that cartoon while I'm washing my hands. Now, I'm not saying that the only reason that I wash my hands after using the restroom is because I'm afraid that there's going to be some crazy alarm going off outside, but it is in the back of my mind. Rewards and consequences are designed to force people to behave in a certain way, to encourage them to do the things that we want them to do, and to discourage them from doing certain things. When it comes to agreements between parties in the ancient Near East, like the one that we have before us. Blessings and curses always come at the end of these agreements. From Babylonian texts, Sanskrit texts, all kinds of agreements between a king or a leader and his people end with blessings and curses. And just like the one that we have here, the curses part far outweighs the blessing part. The blessings are general. Here are some categories through which the leader might bless the people. The curses are always very specific. And the idea of including blessings and curses in an agreement was to set out the stipulations early so that both parties, particularly the lesser party, was encouraged to keep it. They were afraid that the bad things would come to pass if they violated the rules of the covenant, the agreement. They knew punishment was coming. Some things don't change. Many of us do the things that we do and don't do the things we don't do simply because of potential negative consequences. Think about how you follow the laws of our land. Often, when you choose not to do something, it's because you're aware of what could happen if you got caught. But think also spiritually. When you think about what you do as it comes to your relationship with God and what you don't do, If you were to ask yourself honestly, chances are the why, the reason behind your action or choice of not acting comes down to how you think God is going to feel about what you do, how God will react to your action. Because we hear passages like this and it makes us think, I knew it. I knew it all along. God simply blesses those who obey and curses those who disobey right? We think, this is why my life is so good. 
or bad. This is why we think that person's life is so good or bad. Either obedience is present or disobedience is present. But the reality is that this passage communicates something different to us than it does to Israel. Particularly in this time period, Israel hearing this for the first time at the foot of Mount Sinai, to Israel this was a stern and true warning. But to us, it is an invitation. Just two points for us this morning. To Israel, it's a warning. God has, in the history of his relationship with Israel, formed them into his people. He's built a special relationship with them. You might remember at the beginning of Exodus, he called Israel his firstborn son, his people. They are special to him. And God seals this relationship by ratifying this covenant, this agreement. And he lets them know here that this is what life will be like between him and them going forward, and what will happen if they follow the rules or not. But what's important for us to remember is that this is not just God saying, I'm going to bless you if you obey, and I'm going to curse you if you disobey. Because the statutes and stipulations that God presents in Leviticus are actually a response of Israel, not a command, a demand. They are a response because God has already acted favorably towards Israel. He has already saved them. He is the one who pulled them out of slavery in Egypt. He protected Israel from all of the plagues that he sent upon the land. He provided Israel with all of the wealth and gold and riches of the Egyptians that they had taken from Israel throughout all their years of slavery. He saved them when Pharaoh chased them. He protected them when other nations tried to harm them. When the food ran out, God provided food. When the water was poisonous and bitter, God provided sweet and safe water. So all of these rules and regulations and God's desire for them to obey should be a response to God's saving acts, not the reason God will save. That's a really important distinction for us to see and understand. God says obedience will be met with blessings. And he begins to talk about them at the beginning of our passage. These are things that a newly formed nation really wants, particularly as they're getting ready to go into a land that they've not been to before. God says, I'm going to make your fields fruitful. The grain harvest is going to be so plentiful, it will last until the grape harvest. And the grape harvest is going to be so plentiful, it will last until you get to the grape harvest the next time. This is internal security. You're going to be okay in the best way possible. You're going to be full in the best way possible. But he says, I'll protect you from other people. External security as well. This would be the equivalent of God saying, I'm going to bless you with career stability. I'm going to bless you with vested stocks, with tenure with good grades going forward, with healthy and happy kids. I'm going to bless you with lower interest rates. These are things that we would all want. But that's not even the best part of the blessings. The things that God promises to Israel for internal, external security, fruitful lands, that's not the best part. That's not the blessing. Verse 11 starts the blessing. I will make my dwelling among you, And my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. 
That is the height of blessing. All blessing, any blessing that has ever been uttered or given in the history of the world, this is the best thing possible. God's presence, His dwelling, His relationship personally with His people. But of course, there is a flip side to this coin, and that is disobedience will be met with curses. And the curses are, as we said, bigger, longer, and they are more specific. They're terrible. God starts by inverting all of the blessings. He says in verse 16, if you disobey, it will be met with panic among you, a wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and makes the heart ache. You will sow your seed in vain for your enemies will eat it. This is internal insecurity, a lack of health and wellness and external insecurity. People are going to come and to make things terrible for your life. And what God says is over and over, if those curses fail to convince you to return to the covenant, then things are going to get worse. In fact, four times God amplifies, if you don't heed the curses, then I will do more. And I cut that section out and just went straight into the last one. The absolute worst one that God says, after all of these curses and warnings, you choose not to obey. Verse 33, before that, he says, the famine in the land will be so bad that cannibalism will be your only resort. You will eat the flesh of your sons and your daughters. And verse 33 is the height of the curses. I will scatter you among the nations. Your land shall be a desolation, your cities a waste, but the land shall enjoy the Sabbaths that it did not enjoy when you were in it, for you will be in your enemy's land. The worst part about this is that God will scatter the people from the land. God is not leaving the land. The people are. Once again, the worst possible curse here is losing God. Losing connection to God and losing God's presence. The other day, one of our daughters was having a rough morning. She was yelling at her sister and slamming doors. And I looked her right in the eye and I said, if you slam another door, you are going to have another cleaning punishment. We have all of these things that need to be cleaned around the house. And if the girls disobey, that's their punishment. They got to clean it even if it's not theirs. And I looked her right in the eye and said this. And no sooner had those words come out of my mouth than without breaking eye contact, she reached back and just slammed the door in my face. And it's moments like that that make me stand in awe of God's patience. (laughs) Because Israel did the exact same thing to God. They heard the rules. They heard the consequences. And they chose to disobey anyway. But God was patient. God was so patient. Hundreds of years and dozens of generations, God gave them the opportunity to listen and heed the call of the covenant and get the blessings, and they didn't. Eventually, eventually after patience and patience and patience, God sent Assyria in to come and exile all of the people of the northern kingdom out of the land. And then later Babylon to come in and exile all of the people out of the southern kingdom. The people were scattered and lost connection. 
because they broke the covenant. Now, some of you might be saying, this is terrible. How could a loving God actually do this kind of stuff to his people? Because God said he would. And God is someone who is true to his word. Justice is part of his character. Imagine how you feel when you hear a boss say, if you show up late one more time, I'm going to dock your pay. Or you hear a parent say, if you do that again, I'm going to punish you. And instead of actually doing it, they just say it over and over and over again. They're weak. Their word has no power. There's nothing that is done. Israel heard what God said. They agreed to it. They knew what they should do, and they knew what would happen if they didn't. And they didn't heed the warning. Now, the question this morning for us is, in this passage, will you receive the invitation? It was a warning to Israel. It is an invitation to us. Now, you might have a little bit of panic welling up in your heart. You might be thinking to yourself, hold on. I have heard people at Grace talk about us being God's people too. I've already heard somebody describe God as our father This is the same kind of relationship we're talking about as Israel had. Isn't this a warning to us as well? We do talk about God that way. Are we still under the terms and conditions of this contract? Now, that line of thinking might be too straightforward, too simplistic, but most of us operate with a very clear cause and effect mentality. I have done this good thing. I deserve to receive some kind of good thing. This bad thing is happening in my life. I must have done something bad to cause this. This is how we live. This is how we think. And it leads us to believe that God treats us that way as well, that he either blesses or curses us based on our behavior. And if that was the case, then this particular passage of Leviticus is incredibly important to what we do because we need to be looking out for locusts, and drought, and famine, and nations coming through, and things that are terrible. And if you're doing a really good job, you might be wondering why your grape harvest isn't so good. But the good news of the gospel is that God does not bless or curse us based on what we do. See, God's firstborn son, Israel, couldn't keep up their end of the covenant. They disobeyed. But God's true son, Jesus, did perfectly. Not only did he never sin, never disobey, he never did any of the bad stuff that Israel was told not to do, but he did all of the good stuff that Israel was told to do. He sought to love and serve others. He he healed and protected others. He put his relationship with his father first and foremost in every aspect of his life. It's easy for us to live our lives engaging with Scripture thinking, because Jesus came, the law doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't apply to us. It has no bearing on my life. It's helpful to know in case I ever get into, you know, a bar trivia with a Bible part of it. But we can't miss the fact that Jesus' purpose in coming and living was partly to fulfill the law. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus goes on a teaching spree talking about what the law actually means, what it means to follow the law and actually live out putting God first in our lives. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't think that I came to abolish the law. I have come not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. 
to uphold all of its stipulations, to read and know what the terms and conditions mean, to reveal the true meaning to others, and to keep them in every fiber of his being. Which means this, in keeping the law perfectly and fully, Jesus earned all of the blessings of verses 4 through 12. Security, fullness of life, peace, prosperity, wealth, and honor. But we know how his story ended. Instead of those blessings, he got the curses of verses 14 through 39 and far worse. The fear that you feel, maybe I have earned the curse. Maybe my sin and my behavior means God is punishing me. The guilt of knowing your own sin is an, is an appropriate response to our failure to follow God's laws. But the truth is that if you are a Christian, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, then really and truly Jesus has taken the entirety of the curses that your sins deserve on himself. As the hymn in Christ alone put it, on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Satisfied. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. There are no curses, only blessings. Right? This is the greatest exchange in history. Jesus suffered the curses that your sin and my sin and the sin of all of God's people throughout history deserves. And in exchange, we receive the blessings that he earned. This is what the Apostle Paul means when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, all of the promises of God are yes in Jesus. When you read the first eight verses of our passage, Jesus is shouting yes to you. God is giving this to you in Jesus. The blessings of the covenant are yours. Now, Stephen you might say. You said this was an invitation. That kind of sounds like a promise. What am I invited to? Where's the invitation? You're right. It's here. Are you willing to believe that? Are you willing to believe that the old way of thinking, cause and effect, action and reaction, is ineffective and unwarranted within the gospel? That the reality is, because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God sees you as his child. And he tells you this, I will make my dwelling among you. My soul does not abhor you. I walk among you. I am your God, and you are my people. Are you willing to believe that? Even when life is tough. Even when you feel lonely even when you are disappointed and confused and afraid, are you willing to believe that God is with you really and truly? And if you believe that, how does that change how you live? How do we live differently knowing God is with us really and truly because of Jesus? 
Well, the reality is verse 3 and verse 40 become incredibly important to us, right? Because if we walk in God's statutes and observe his commandments and we do them, that's no longer a way of earning God's blessings. Jesus has already earned all of the blessings. That's just the way that you walk closer with God, the way that you get to sense his presence. The invitation is to sit with God, to get to know him and listen to him, to read his word, to talk to him in prayer, to fast and to meditate, to give and to have fellowship with other believers. All those things that are contained in verse 3, the invitation is to see that that's not making God love you or making God bless you, but they are in fact a blessing because they draw you closer to God. And verse 40 tells you this is the response to have when you do the things you shouldn't do or when you don't do the things that you should do. When you are confronted and convicted of your sin, it's not a reason to be afraid, to be fearful that God is going to punish you, to run and try and hide or do good works to make it better. But instead, as God says, if you confess your iniquity, and the iniquity of your fathers in the treachery that they committed and walk in, in, in walking contrary to me, how does God respond to repentance? Always, every time, I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will be their God, for I am the Lord. This is the invitation of a passage that seems only historical. Do you believe that nothing you can do will make God love you more and nothing you have done or will do will make God love you less. This is the promise of Jesus. How does that change how you live? Let's pray. Oh God, we come this morning, uh, and again, these words are easy to hear, to hear that you love us no matter what, that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, Our standing as your children cannot be changed. And yet everything in our world, in our lives, the narrative of our hearts tell us we must be better. We have to work harder. Help us instead to search for you, to see where you are at work in our lives, where you are moving, changing us, loving us, blessing us. Help us to prioritize loving you over loving your blessings. We pray all of this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen.